Titus chapter 3. We've, um, before we jump into it, we'll, we'll start with a bit of a, <clears throat> an anecdote. I, I, was, I uh, listened to an evangelist online, and, and I love one, of, one uh, story that he told one time was, uh, uh, was that there was this woman who was a tourist, and she was in a European country somewhere she didn't speak the language of, and she was going through the mountains, and she'd broken down in her car on this back mountainous road. And, and there she was, stuck, and it was dark. She was in a foreign land, no man with her, just her in a car in the bush and uh, she didn't know where she was she was uh, out of battery and out of service and on her phone and and out of the bush comes this man running and screaming at her car it's in a language that she doesn't know I don't know if you've ever been yelled at maybe by a teacher maybe by a neighbor maybe by somebody on the street who speaks a different language they might be telling you how beautiful you are it just sounds angry when you don't understand it so this guy's yelling and he's 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 banging on her window he's trying to open the door and she's obviously fearful she's terrified and she locks every door she can she moves into the center where she'll be out of reach she's afraid and then he disappears back into the bush she takes a few breaths of relief and he emerges again with a rock in his hand and he sprints at this car and goes to a window opposite from her, far away from her, just starts smashing the glass in. He climbs in, unlocks a door and drags her out across from the road into the corners of the bush, yelling still with just moments to spare before a train comes and collects her car altogether. Uh, which you can see that from her point of view, she was being attacked. She was being abused. She was about to be murdered at best. We don't know what she was going through her mind entirely, but from his point of view, he was, he was saving her. He was doing what she needed to do. He was giving her sound advice. When she wouldn't take it, she made him take it, right? He was a savior. And when we look to many doctrines in the Word of God, but particularly salvation, there is, we can answer questions from two points of view. When we look at uh, the human side of things and we say, you are a Christian now, you are a, a follower of Christ, you believe in him, uh, what does that mean? What did you do? What, what is salvation to you as a Christian? We might answer that with, well, I'm somebody who has faith. I'm somebody who believes. I'm somebody who seeks to obey Christ. That's me. I'm a reader of the word of God. I'm a person who changes my life. I preach the word of God. But of course, from God's point of view, we can answer that not differently, not contrary to that, but, but a lot more uh, uh, in a distinct way. We would say, well, uh, no, you say you believe, but really God made you born again. You say you're changing your life, but really God is renewing you through his word. You say that, that you follow Christ, but really he holds you in his hand. And, and so we can come at these, these and speak of salvation in ways that sound almost as opposite as how this young woman in the car and this crazed man with a rock in his hand might describe their two experiences. And so we come, as we go to Titus chapter 3, next week we're going to be breaking down verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, which speaks of the, the work of God in our salvation. That is going to be talking about um, the, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, regeneration, justification that comes through faith, and of course other doctrines surrounding that from God's point of view. But today we speak of faith, of conversion and of repentance. So can you go with me to verse 8? <clears throat> Halfway through verse 8, the sentence continues like this. He says, uh, you know, urge these things, 
so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now we know that good works has been a main theme of the book of Titus. Sound doctrine, good works. Sound doctrine, good works. And, and he's obviously urging good works. But he, he calls the Christian somebody who has believed in God. And that's a very human uh, uh, side of things, or way to describe salvation. We are those who have believed in God. That's almost man-dependent. But then go with me over to verse <clears throat> 4 and 5, and it rather shows it from God's point of view. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His mercy. So we see that there are these, in this very passage, going together as threads woven together to, to make up the tapestry of sound doctrine. We're going to have today, uh, we're going to see the, the two sides of this coin of salvation. So can you just read with me from chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll read through to the end of verse 11. Hear now the word of our triune living God, the only true Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Self May God bless the reading and the opening of his precious, holy, inerrant word to us this morning. <clears throat> well, we're going to look here today. First, we're going to uh, uh, speak of faith, conversion, and repentance as it pertains to a Christian doing good works. And so we saw there in verse 8 that we are those who have believed in God. It's, it's going to be unhelpful if today I jump straight in and start talking about conversion and, and a changed life if we don't start with the doctrine of and the reminder of faith. Faith is the, the sole instrument by which you and I are joined to Christ for salvation. There is no good works done. There is no obeying of the law. And, and we rehearsed this last week in the evening as we remembered Reformation Sunday and went through those five solas of the Reformation. But today, I want to break down the components of faith just, just quickly because it says here, as Paul says in verse 8, he says, believed in God. But if you're, you know, a, a, an astute the, a theological student and you know your Bible, you're going to know that believing in God is not enough for salvation. Or we could say that 
Whatever Paul means here by believed in God is more than simply asking somebody on the street, are you saved? And them saying, yeah, I believe in God, whoever he or she is. I'm sure they're great. We're good friends. I believe they exist. I'm not an atheist, a complete philosophical materialist. I'm not that. Is that enough to save? Of course not. Of course not. Faith is, I'm going to give it three components today, and I'm not going to give it that. I'm going to say what smarter men than me have given to faith in three components. The Reformers uh, outlined faith as having three essential components. Number one, they spoke of notitia. This is a Latin word, notitia. The second word is ascensus, and the third is fiducia. Uh, the Latin notitia means knowledge. A knowledge of data or, or the facts. Okay, so, so the first step in having saving faith is to be able to know, maybe not recite in, in perfect um, uh, rhetorical speech and give, give, give long explanations of every doctrine. Okay, but you need to be someone who knows the facts of the gospel. That Jesus is God the Son in flesh, dying for our sin, living for our righteousness, resurrected from the grave, seated in heaven, the ruler of all things, and he is coming back again to take those who believe in him with him and to condemn those who reject him. That's, they're the basics. There's more. There'll be, as we said today, the, the, the Trinity and things that we can't deny. But, but to have faith, you need to at least know the facts. But we know that that's not enough because even, even atheists, even those who would be, be detractors of our religion, they know these facts. Sometimes, I'm sorry to say, better than Christians. Uh, I, I, I've engaged with, with uh, somewhat learned atheists before or unbelievers before in the Baha'i faith or in, or in atheism and, and Buddhism and, and, and Islam. And I've, I've spoken with them. Some of them have been imams. Some of them have, have been teachers and whatnot or priests and the Buddhists. And they seem to sometimes sometimes, grasp quite well the Christian theology. They, they know the story. They know the facts. They are still unsaved because this step one, notitia, knowing the facts is not enough. It's essential. It's just not enough. The second one is ascensus. You can hear in that word, the, the, the English word, ascent. And that really means that you, you know the facts and you believe them. You agree with the facts. You say, yeah, that's true. Jesus actually lived, actually died. I agree with the Trinity. I agree with these facts intellectually. I know them, I believe them, and agree with them. But thirdly, because we know from the book of James that even demons know the facts. Even demons believe the facts to be absolutely certain and true. That is why they shudder and tremble, but they are not saved. And neither are many who sit in church pews who know the facts and believe the facts. They are still unsaved because the third part of, of saving faith is, as called in the Latin, fiducia really means trust. It, it's the word that we really get the word faith from. It means not only that you know the facts, not only that you believe them to be true, but that you entrust yourself to Jesus, relying on those facts, placing the weight of your eternal soul onto those facts and saying, I don't just believe them to be true. I, I throw myself upon them in trust. Spurgeon has this amazing book. I, I recommend you get it. It's short. You can read it quickly. It's easy to read. It's called All of Grace, and it's basically an elongated tract. It's only about 100 pages in, in pretty big type. Uh, so so it's, um, 
he, and he says in that, he, he asks this question as he's explaining faith. He says, how can faith be, be uh, uh, exemplified? How can it be, uh, what's a metaphor for faith that, that can help us understand? And he, he sort of gave a lot of examples, but two of them were body parts. He said, faith, you know, this, this, ascent, this notitia, ascensus, fiducia, let, let's use a lot more simple language. It's like the eye. The eye has an ability to, to look up into the sky and see something that is 148 million kilometers away, right? That's our sun. And bring it immediately into its own experience. Receive all that it is. Not, not all that it is, but, but receive what it should be for me into my retina, into my brain in an instant. The eye adds nothing to the sun. The, the, the lens, the retina, the, creates no image in and of itself. It simply receives what is there. And Spurgeon said that, that, the, the, uh, that, that faith is a look of an eye. It is the look of faith that sees Jesus, not, not 148 million kilometers away, but infinitely beyond us, away from us in, in the sense that we could never reach him. We do not climb up to the sun to see it. We remain down here. It condescends to us. And so by the look of faith, we see Jesus and receive him immediately. We don't add to him. We don't put righteousness into the gospel. We see, we behold, we are saved. Spurgeon also said it's like, it's like a mouth. Faith is like a mouth that is hungry and food is put into it and all that it has to do is receive it. A mouth does not add flavor. A mouth does not add nutritious components to a meal. It simply receives it swallows it, and then receives its beneficial, nutritious uh, components to its own body. And so it is that with faith, we don't, with this, 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 this mouth of faith, we don't add to Jesus. We don't create nutritious components for our soul. We simply receive him as he is in the gospel. And we take him into ourselves and, and receive the benefits within our souls from him. Spurgeon went on to say that you never have to coach a hungry, living man how to eat. You put it before him and he will start taking it down in a rush. And so it is with, with the living soul, the, the hungry soul who desires salvation. They never need to be coached on how to believe, how to receive Jesus. They don't need to be given a script on how to pray to be saved. The living person, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, with Christ put forward to them, if they have eyes to see and a mouth to believe, they take him in a rush and receive all of his saving benefits. This is faith. This is the beginning of the Christian life. If you do not have faith like this, this is, then you do not have saving faith and you don't have Jesus. So we, we begin there. We have faith and we are converted. Can you go with me to verses 1 through 3 here in our text this morning? When we speak of conversion, we mean really the, the human side of regeneration. Regeneration is when God, by His sovereign Holy Spirit, before we are even able to believe in Christ, He, he makes us alive. He gives us a heart of faith, and we place our faith in Christ. Then we, we start changing our lives. We change our lives because Christ changed our heart. And so when we speak of conversion here, we, we're speaking not so much of a conversion from death to life, but from evil to righteous living. So he starts in verse 1, uh, 
saying that one of the, the key components to conversion is going to be how you act as a civilian, and then he's going to say as a neighbor in verse 2, and then recount all of the types of sins that we lived in. So look at, look at verse 1 here. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Remind them. So he's already said this before. I've told them, but we all know this sort of thing needs to be repeated. Remind them, those, those gluttonous, lazy, evil beast, lying creations, as he said over in verse 12 of chapter 1. He knows what they're like. He knows they need to be reminded. And I think he just knows that they're humans like us. They need to be reminded to be submissive and obedient. It's, it's historically verified. It's, it's biblically witnessed to the fact that the Cretans were rebellious people. They were on this, this party island. They, they had ships coming in every day with, with more people to join the party. They were rich. They had plenty of booze and all sorts of other substances. They were evil, lazy, and gluttonous. And it was even said of them that they were um, reading from a history book here, they were constantly involved in insurrections. That's, you know, political riots, seeking to overthrow officials, mostly peaceful protests, that sort of thing. <clears throat> and they were murderers, mostly peaceful murderers probably. Uh, <clears throat> right? But they, 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 were, they were constantly involved in insurrections. Right? An election went the way they didn't want. They'd overturn the town. They'd, they'd kill people they didn't want. They'd, they'd, they'd get themselves, well, well, part of the town into power. Then maybe the other party sort of came up and tried the same thing. And, and Paul's saying, Titus, if they're going to be Christian, they, God calls us all to be Christians, but he calls us all to be Christians in your culture. And so for you to be a Christian in, in this culture will look different from being a Christian in, in the far reaches of the deserts of Africa, say. It, now, it's, it doesn't mean we have different commands to obey, but it will mean that we have different emphases, emphases to put on. We have different elements that we need to recognize we have received from our culture. We have received from our sinful flesh, fed on by the, the world that we're living in. And so, you know, God calls men to repent. He calls them to repent of specific sins, and usually it's the sins of the culture that need to be focused on. And so he's telling them, tell them that to be Christians in Crete will look like being submissive and obedient to authorities unlike the rest of the people in your town. It means that they need to give up whatever they were doing beforehand and act like Christians. So what we see here, we see a few things. <clears throat> we, we, we have, uh, I think as Christians, we have two ways that we can fall off the horse on this particular command and exhortation from Paul. And, and in the context of having evil leaders, no one needs to be told to be submissive and obedient and, or, and respectful when you've got Jesus incarnate on the throne, right? You, you don't need, when everyone agrees with all of your policies, you don't need to be told to be submissive. That's not submitting. That's agreeing. But in the context of having evil rulers, which everywhere did that Paul wrote this to, Nero was not a godly guy, okay? And, and in Paul's life, he would still say in the book of Romans, submit, obey, give respect and honor. So when we speak of having evil tyrannical rulers. Christians can fall off the horse in one of two ways. One of the ways is to try and take the kingdom with a sword. 
right? We try and take the kingdom for Jesus with swords. And maybe that's a metaphorical sword, uh, guns, uh, or, or, or riots, or violence of some kind, because we have this assurance. And this is a good assurance as Christians. We have the assurance that Jesus appointed these people, right? These rulers. This is what Romans 13 tells us. Any ruler and authority, Jesus put them there. He appointed them. He also holds these rulers accountable and will judge them for their right doing and their wrongdoing. We have the, the assurance that he commands them to do right, and we are assured that he will one day bring the rulers of this world to rule justly for his sake. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says that he will bring the justice to the nations. <clears throat> They're all good assurances to have. But our temptation then is to put the sword out of the mouth of Jesus, out of the hand of Jesus Christ into our hands and start helping him lop off some servants' ears like Peter the fool. We think that Jesus needs help. He's on the throne. He's a king. We'll help him out like, like a toddler trying to beat up some huge dude for the dad. That's not how this is going to work. He, if he needed help, he would not call on you and your fighting, but the legions of angels in his army. So we have the temptation to take the sword into our hands, but our high, because our highest confidence is that Jesus is taking over the nations. If you didn't know that, that's a Christian conviction, that Jesus is taking over the world through his church. You, you, do, you do not understand the fullness of the Christian gospel. But our priority and our methodology is not taking over top-down but it is, it is taking the gospel to people and ourselves living in personal and church-wide communal holiness, including submission and obedience until Jesus takes over the world with glory. So we show good works, we preach the gospel, and we submit to our authorities. So this is, that's one side that we can fall off, trying to take the sword into our hands and take the kingdom we ought not to do that. But we can fall off the other side as well and let the tyrannical rulers take the kingdom with their swords. That also is not allowed. Let me explain that a little bit more. We can, as Christians, we can let them overstep their authority and command sin or we can let them overstep their authority and step into the church and start manipulating with their authority. That is pretended authority. Well, one thing that Romans 13 tells us uh, is that is a couple of things about authority that belongs to the rulers of this world. Number one, it's always a limited authority. Every person in this world, whether it's fathers in the home, a boss at work, the slave, sorry, master over the slave in Paul's day, the, the rulers over a nation. Everybody has a limited authority that is defined by Jesus in his word. Everybody but Jesus. It, the only one without limited authority is God. He has all authority on heaven and earth given to him. He gives small amounts a portion to different people for order and good. So one of the, the things that, that our governors and our rulers don't have the authority to do is to define what they have authority over. 
That's ultimate authority. If you get to write out your contract with a pencil, keep on rubbing out little bits and, and keep on adding to it when you want. If, if state borders, exam, for example, were, were put in by chalk, and whenever you wanted, you could erase them and extend them, you have the power to do whatever you want whenever. And that's not the authority given to the rulers of this world. So we, we have to stop the rulers and authorities. In, in our own mind, we, we have to recognize they don't have the authority to do a couple of things. They don't have the authority to command us to sin. That would make them lords over Jesus who told us, do not sin. And so Caesar is not Lord. And, and when Caesar commanded the early century Christians to bow down and worship him, they, uh, they did not obey and they had their head removed. That was godly disobedience. But the other thing that Caesar does not have the authority to do, no king or authority on earth has the authority to do, is step into the church, maybe not physically, but write edicts that apply to the church that in any way control our worship and freedom of activity in worshiping Jesus Christ. Because number one, Jesus, Ephesians 1 and 4 tell us this, that Jesus is, is the ruler over all things, the whole universe, at his feet, under his rule. But then he was given, as the head over all things, to the husband and head and ruler of the church. And, and so, so not only as civilians does the authorities not get to tell us to do whatever they want, but especially as church members. We have, a, we have a double connection to Jesus Christ. He's the king overall and the head of this church. We worship how he commands. We don't sit down and sing or not sing because they've told us there's a, there's a sickness going around. We've been told to sing. We've been told to preach, told to gather. This is our responsibility. And, and wherever Christians fail, they fall off this side of the horse and give too much power to the authorities, we act as cowards and we do not love our neighbors well. I think this is what Paul was sort of alluding to, or this is the logic behind his order, when he then says at the end of verse 1, be submissive, be obedient, to be ready for every good work. You're obedient so that you can do good. You're submissive so that good might abound. So, so wherever that obedience and submission means evil, we don't do that. That means that we are conscientious citizens, so that if our government starts acting in ways that God has not given them to do, Romans 13 says that they are given to punish evil, bless righteous. When they start punishing the righteous, letting the evil go free, or killing them, then, or, or failing to bring justice, rather, killing the righteous, we have to be the conscience of the state. We have to have the, the boldness to respectfully and honorably stand up, tell them they're overstepping, and, and, and refuse to obey in those ways. If we don't do that, who have the clearest conscience and the most biblical reasons to do so with our king on the throne, we do not love our neighbors well. We do not love the future generations coming well. And, and we don't actually honor the office of authority very well at all. We allow sin to come in. It goes unchallenged. Rather, like John the Baptist, we should be willing to stand up, speak up respectfully, without violence, but clearly articulate God's standards, even if it has our heads removed for standing up to a biblical stance of marriage like John the Baptist. <clears throat> so that's one of the main ways we are to be 
converted, have good works come about in our life. But now look at verse 2. Verse 2. This is how we must treat our neighbors. We must speak evil of no one. We avoid quarreling. We are to be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. So we are those who hold doctrine fast, who preach the gospel boldly, who know how we are to live. And as Steve Lawson says, we don't just, we're not just dogmatic. We're bulldogmatic on what we must believe and how we must behave. But that comes with respect and gentleness, and we are not seeking out the next fight. We don't just have our hands constantly wrapped, waiting for somebody else to say one thing we politically disagree with to start throwing verbal hands at them. We are those who, who should be gentle. Now, let me say very clearly, it doesn't say here, live so that everyone else doesn't speak evil of you, doesn't want to quarrel with you. They say you're gentle and they know you're perfectly courteous. No one has that happen if you're actually obeying Jesus. Jesus didn't even have that happen. He was all of these things and they said the worst things about him. So friends, make sure Jesus is your Lord functionally. Somebody in your workplace says you're a bigot. You don't bow your knee to that and say, you are right, my Lord is wrong. This is not love. You come to the word and say, no, no, I'm sure. I'm obeying the law, speaking it in love. I'm not a bigot. Somebody says to you that you're ungentle, you're unloving, you're so unkind. You come to the word and if you see yourself obedience and gentleness and honor and respect, you politely disregard that rebuke in your own mind. So, so let, that, let the word be a definer, but let us, as we go in boldness, be gentle. We're the friend, always willing to pray with our unbelieving friends. We're, we're always giving advice in love and honor. We're those who, when they have a dire need, maybe in their family, maybe they have spiritual questions, they're willing to come to us because they know we speak the truth in love. <clears throat> Verse 3 is just marvelously insulting to every Christian who, who allows themselves to, to pump themselves up with pride. The reason we act this way is because we know where we have come from. For we, verse 3 says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We were that. That was us. And if you're a Christian, that was you. There is no putting makeup on that to make it look any better. We were pugnacious pigs in the eyes of the law. But God, but God, look at verse, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. This is... This is where Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, praise God for the buts in the Bible. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive. We were all of these horrendous things, but God came in loving kindness and brought us to a newness of life. Friends, this is what conversion is. Read again with me verse 3, and we're going to reverse it so that we see what a converted life looks like. We were those things, but we ourselves now are wise, obedient, led on the right way, slaves to righteousness, passing our days in love and generosity, 
loved by others and loving one another. Maybe the one word we can keep the same there is hated by others and yet loving one another. This is the converted life. We have to ask ourselves as we come to texts like this, are we, are we converted? Has my life from the outside appeared to change? The, 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 the words here that it says down in verse 8, to be devoted to good works, carefully devote themselves to good works, it, it has the, in the Greek the meaning of take up a new occupation. Right. Having a whole new job, you have a new boss, you have a new style of living, you have new focuses and motivations. The Christian life is a changed life. He says in verse 8, to be devoted to them, he says that these good works are excellent and they are profitable for people. Devoted to them means that they are not occasional. We don't have one or two things we do every now and then to sort of perfume spray the, the carcass of dead living that we otherwise live in. But we, friends, are those devoted to, living in with devotion, again that word, good works. But, but let me say, it says excellent here because they are reflections of the excellent law of God. They are reflections of the nature of our God who is himself perfect. Our works are excellent, but let me say they're profitable for people. This is just one, one area that I think we as Christians so often neglect what he means here. Good works means beneficial for other people. It means that they're profitable. It means that other people are gaining because you are doing these good works. If your good works occur between you, your journal, and your study Bible, that's not good works that Paul is talking about. If the essence of your good works happen between you and your self-help book, that's not the good works that he's speaking of. If your good works are simply between you and the other people in the comment section of Facebook, those are not good works enough to be considered excellent because they are not profitable. Has your envy turned to generosity? Has your malice turned to sweetened love? Has your, has your passions and lust turned to purity in ways that protects other people's mor morality? Our life needs to turn around not just inwardly, but actually be felt by the world around us. That is how it becomes tangible, tangible goodness. If our goodness is not seen, heard, or felt by those closest to us, it is not the goodness of God. <clears throat> but turn with me now over to... Verse 9. Again, you know that I just skipped all of the good stuff. Verses 5, 6, 7. We're going to go back to that next week and get into the meaty things. But today we consider what it looks like in our lives to know Jesus. We have faith. We've been converted to good works. But a focus now on what repentance is. The repentance is really uh, 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 spoken more of, a, more of a negative way. In, 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 it's a good thing, but in the sense that repentance turns from evil. We're converted towards good works, but we repent from evil deeds. So read here now, verse 9 through to 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, 
Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. He comes really into the specifics here, doesn't he? He's, he's speaking specifically of foolish arguments that have no profit in the life of the church. They are worthless and useless. And then he's going to speak particularly about divisiveness. Divisiveness. Because uh, uh, repentance, again, is, is not enough simply to speak into a, a church. Now, now, we know if Paul was writing to this church this week, he would probably write a different list of things to be particular about repentance for. We could, we could think all day about what they probably would be, but, but let's rather just exegete the text. He's saying to the Cretans, the Cretan church, now we remember that they were without leaders until Titus went in to set them up. And these two things just grow like weeds in a garden where there is not proper, godly, ordained leadership. You have foolish, idiotic controversies, argumentation about theology that has no actual basis in uh, in, the, in the life, it has no application. It does not build up and edify, but tears down and confuses and is really only useful for propping up the arguers themselves as, as first-year seminary students. And so that causes division, verse 10. Division is rife where leadership is not strong, bringing together for the mission of Christ in unity. <clears throat> Paul's mind particularly, as it says here in the end of verse 9, just as we saw in verse 8, that good works are profitable. Good works get the church moving on its mission. Evil works are defined as those which are unprofitable and worthless. Maybe the things that they're, they're arguing about in these controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, they're not necessarily untrue. Probably, the, the sense is that commentators believe, these are probably false teachings in among all those things. But, but even if they're not, it doesn't matter. If there's arguments, there's debates, there's dissensions about things that are, end of verse 9, unprofitable, stop having them. If you're in an argument, maybe you're, you're spending weeks arguing with, with somebody else or you love throwing around this, this controversy, controversy and, and you ask yourself, what good will this have once resolved? What good will it do to the people of my church, to the people that I prove wrong, to the people that I now explain this to? If you can't answer that clearly, then you must stop arguing about this thing. Now, the reality is that everything worth fighting about has actual effects in our life. But this is a way that we can weed out useless controversies, is think, how is this going to benefit the church? How will this build up, my brothers and sisters? And if not, it is worthless. In verse 10, maybe you've known a divisive person before. Maybe you've been a divisive person before. Or divisive, if you rather that pronunciation. Divisive persons are toxic to the church. Most likely, Paul is speaking here of somebody who is a false convert. We know from Matthew 18, we know from uh, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 5, that church discipline, which is being described here, elders are seeing, seeking to bring people to repentance, and where there is no repentance, putting them out of the body 
through, through a warning, and then secondly, a more severe warning. Maybe, maybe that includes uh, setting them aside from certain ministries or services or, or activities of the church. If that still does not bring somebody to end their sin, they are, in the end, self-condemned, warped and sinful, rather than upright, righteous, and showing themselves to be righteous. Back in verse 3, that, that list of sins there, pairs up perfectly with verse 10. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. If somebody is in the church sowing division, spreading gossip, speaking slander about people, seeking to bring others down, prop themselves up, distracting from the work of gospel evangelization with useless conversations, that person is still living a, a, a verse 3 lifestyle. And so, friends, we cannot, we, we cannot allow ourselves to tolerate sins that, that bring about division in the church, but sin in general. Repentance is coming from the same heart that produces faith. When we, when we think of repentance, don't think you must repent and you must also have faith as two separate acts in order to receive Christ. Rather, Paul said that he preached repentance towards God and faith towards Christ. These are two, two acts coming out of the same soul. These are two flowers coming out of the same uh, plant that we have uh, repentance and faith are produced by the same heart that God gives a born-again person. So, that, that we have to consider ourselves. If we have, by faith, grasped Christ, we must let go of sin. If we consider that, that we are those who have been bound to Christ, we must sever ourselves from sin. The Lord is gracious and will do it. They, those two things are, are going in opposite directions. Two horses sprinting to, to, to opposite sides of the field. And if you try and hold on to both of them, you will be torn asunder. A man cannot serve two masters. If we claim Christ, we must renounce sin in our lives. God is not gracious so as to overlook our sin and never punish it. He is gracious to punish it in Jesus and bring us out of our sin. And so we each have to, have to think today as we, we read this from Titus. If, if we were there in the church on Crete, would, would Titus be coming and tapping us on the shoulder? Would, would the elders that he's elected and, and put in place, would they be coming and speaking to us about our lifestyle? about how we talk to other people, our work ethic, how much we do to serve others, how we speak, how we gossip. Would you have a lifestyle worthy of rebuke from Titus? That applies to Christians. We each have things to repent of and must, lest we be dealt with harshly because of our unbelief and unrepentance. But to those of us who are here, as there would have been in the island of Crete's churches, those of us who have not even taken the first step that we spoke of today, of faith, somebody who has believed in God for salvation, then today is the day that you must leave behind your sin of envy and malice and, and following after the passions of your flesh. You must today see that in Jesus Christ's death on the cross was punishment for your sins. 
You must see that in his resurrection from death to life, there was your security for eternal life if you believe in him. That there is freeness, there is freedom, there is liberty from sin available to you. That you can walk in by the power of Jesus Christ. That you can know for certain today, if you, if you believe in Him and trust your soul to Him, you will be saved and spared from the wrath that is to come in the end of days when Jesus, from His throne, declares you an unrepentant sinner and casts you into eternal hellfire. Flee from that while Christ may be found. Come to Him while his, his, the food of His gospel is still spread on the table. Come to Him, be saved and know Him as your Savior and your Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray for this in our lives, for the salvation of those we know. Father God, we love You. We thank You for Your Son. We thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the church. Still filled with people who are sinners, still filled with, with habits and, and sins that die hard. But God, we thank You that You've given to us Your Holy Spirit that we can dwell on your word, be instructed about how to live, and by the power of the gospel, not to be saved, but because we are saved, not to establish a righteousness, but because we are righteous in Jesus, we can go about the work of slaughtering our sin for your glory. I pray, God, that we would be a church that is unified on the mission, that is profitable in our good works, that is helpful and upbuilding in all the ways that we serve one another, we would be out, outward focused on how we can, can love and bless each other rather than inward focused on how we can serve ourselves. Father God, we pray that through us you would adorn your gospel and that through us you would spread your gospel. May you, may you send us as preachers in our workplace, preachers on the streets, preachers to our, our families. The Lord, your gospel may save sinners and like us, they can say we were envious, we were sinful, we were haters, but now God rules in our hearts. We praise you, God, for all your work through Jesus Christ and it is in his name that we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.